0: Welcome to the podcast for Resurrection Lutheran Church in Fredericksburg, Texas. I'm Pastor Garrett Bovinghausen. Today is Thursday, August 13th, 2020, and we are doing another segment on preparing for Sunday morning. Um, we did not have a Bible study this past Tuesday because we, um, my wife is expecting um, our first child, and we are kind of... On Baby Watch right now, so um, uh, trying to keep this very short. I, this may be uh, a Sunday where I'm gonna maybe take a hiatus, uh, depending on when the baby decides to come, <laughs> or when God decides to bring the baby on. Uh, but we're still going to go through the text for today, so y'all can prepare, y'all can get ready. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll keep it a little short this time, too. We'll try and keep it around 30 minutes. We've been doing pretty good about that in the past few episodes here. But um, we'll begin uh, with our collect for this coming Sunday, which is the Sunday that's uh, the 10th Sunday after Trinity. Uh, but let's begin with the word of prayer. O God, you declare your almighty power above all in showing mercy, and pity. Mercifully grant us such a measure of your grace that we may obtain your gracious promises and be made partakers of your heavenly treasures through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. So let's dive in here. Um, We are beginning to see, um, well, we can kind of see what this trend of this Sunday, this theme of this Sunday is going to be from our collect that I just prayed. So let's go through that again. O God, you declare your almighty power above all in showing mercy and pity mercifully grant us such a measure of your grace that we may obtain your gracious promises and be made partakers of your heavenly treasures." So there's, it's it's a great collect. You get into the understanding that God shows his power, not necessarily in judgment, but in showing mercy and pity to poor, miserable sinners. And um, it is. It is. It's. It's a great prayer in showing that you know it takes more. It's more of a powerful thing for God to show mercy. It's. It's a lot easier for Him to just destroy us, and to uh, cast judgment upon us. But but He shows His power in His mercy and pity. Um, but that doesn't mean that um, everything's all good, right? Uh, at least not, not, not on the outset. Because first of all. Um, God takes mercy... God shows mercy and pity um, on poor, miserable sinners uh, by sending Christ to die for us, right? Jesus had to die for us, and that was a horrible price that had to be paid. It came at a horrible cost for us to be shown mercy and pity, right? But because of that... We ask that God would mercifully grant us such a measure of His grace that we may obtain His gracious promises and be made partakers of His heavenly treasures. So this is all God acting, all God doing the work. And we'll see that um, this is a cry, it's it's a response to our gospel text, honestly. Uh, to our gospel text and to some degree our uh, Old Testament text for this Sunday, So, but since uh, in the one-year lectionary, all the texts really revolve and support the gospel text. We're going to take a look at the gospel text first. So the gospel is from uh, St. Luke, chapter 19, verses 41 through 48. I'll read that real quick here. When Jesus drew near and saw the city, that's Jerusalem, He wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon um and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold saying to them it is um saying to them it is written my house shall be a house of prayer but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were 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 excuse me were seeking to destroy him but they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise be to thee, O Christ. So there's a lot here. (laughs) Let's just say that right off the bat, is that there's so much going on here. Um, To put this within the proper context, what is happening here in Luke chapter 19 is this is Jesus' final journey uh, to Jerusalem, right? Uh, We see that in chapter 19... Leading up to this point, um, we see, uh, right before this, we see the triumphal entry, right? Or at least Luke's, um, Luke's rendering of it in his gospel. Um, and there's something very interesting here. There's, there's this mention of stones in our gospel text, right? We see uh, the, there's this warning to Jerusalem, Right, And Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. And he goes through this, um, these things that will come upon Jerusalem. Uh, this is a prophecy here about what would happen in the destruction of Jerusalem uh, in 70, 70 A.D. Um, I can't remember if it's 70 or 71, but I think it's 70 A.D. Um, from the emperor Titus. And we see that um, in verse 44, And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And then we, if we go back a little bit uh, in the triumphal entry, when uh, some of the Pharisees in the crowd uh, heard the people saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The Pharisees said, Teacher, rebuke your dis- teacher. Rebuke your disciples," he answered. "I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out." So there's this interesting um, talk of stones, and, and and we'll also talk about this in our epistle text from Romans chapters nine and ten. That there's this understanding of stones, um, but we'll get to what. Um, uh, let me see here. We'll we'll get to how Romans plays into all this. I can't get ahead of myself on this one. Well, let's see this. So. It's interesting that we start this text off with Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, right? Jesus drew near and saw Jerusalem and wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Now, this is very interesting because Jerusalem is the city of peace, right? It's built within the name, Jerusalem, Salem, right? The city of peace. Um, But they don't know peace. That Jerusalem is supposed to be this place that is set apart, the holy. Uh, it's supposed to be, the, it's supposed to be the holy s- s- city set on a hill that is supposed to be different from everywhere else. But really, it's no different. In fact, it's worse. It's worse. They have no idea what peace really means, and they are rejecting Christ. Um, and his teachings, even though we see that you know people were hanging on his word, um, there's good reason because we will see later on when Jesus is arrested and tried and everything like that, no one, no one comes to his rescue. No one, not even his disciples, including Peter, would fulfill the promises that they made, while Jesus is fulfilling the promise that he made to die for our sins. Right. So there's a lot going on here, and Jesus weeping. Is very interesting too because there's only two places in the uh, gospel accounts where Jesus weeps and one of them is over the death of Lazarus, right? The death of Lazarus and the sorrow that um, Mary and Martha have because of that. So he's weeping over death and then he's weeping over Jerusalem here in Luke's gospel. And there are other instances of where he shows compassion, uh, but he doesn't weep, or at least it's not recorded that he does, that he's weeping because this place that should be the place of peace, the place where um, God would gather his people in his temple, these people are, they have taken everything and they have just tossed it out. They have totally rejected the peace that is embodied in Jesus, right, um, that the leaders especially, the Pharisees, the, the, the scribes, and the high priests are rejecting Christ, um, and they openly do so, and they show their full rejection in their arrest and um, trying of him uh, with the Sanhedrin. So, um, but he says there's this prophecy here. Where he says, but now, um, he says, for the days will come upon you when, when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And we see that he's saying these things, um, it, it has an eschatological understanding to it. Um, eschatology, eschatology, eschaton, you see, it's the study of the last things. So, so, um, escha means, uh, the eschaton means the last things and, um, Logi, you know, means um, the words, right? The knowledge, the, the the things we know about the last times, eschatology. But it's kind of interesting that he's saying these things. This is a prophecy that will be fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem, which includes the destruction of the temple um, with the Romans sacking Jerusalem. Just, But before they do that, there's tremendously horrible things that happen in um they lay siege to Jerusalem, people starve, um, uh, and then uh, people starve and they fight. And they, this is all recorded in uh, Josephus' um, uh, book on the Ju- uh, the Jewish war. Um, and you see this horrible, grotesque thing that happens to Jerusalem, but it's not something that's undeserved, right? And, and, and we get this picture in the destruction of Jerusalem that is a prophecy for all those who reject the peace of God, which is embodied in Christ. Um, and it's very, uh, it's kind of funny that when right as Jesus is saying this, this is right after the triumphal entry, where all the people are saying, um, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. But Jesus is weeping, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, right? That there's this hypocrisy going on in Jerusalem, and it reminds us of the hypocrisy that goes on within our own lives, uh, within ourselves, uh, where we should be looking first and foremost, and within um, our brothers and sisters in Christ as well. Because if we're suffering it, then you know that others are suffering it as as, as well. There's this hypocrisy That uh, goes on even within the church, uh, especially within the church. This hypocrisy that on the outside we um, put on this nice bright face that everything is going well or that we're doing all the right things, where in reality we're poor, miserable sinners that deserve nothing but condemnation and death. So, This is definitely a call to repentance here, and not just for the city of Jerusalem. It's not just for Jerusalem to say, hey, straighten up and fly right. It's all about faith. Do your thing, and it'll be fine. It is a reminder for all of us on a personal level and as a collective level, uh, as on the level of the church as well, to say that if we do not know the things that make for peace, um they will be hidden from our eyes because we don't have faith. And if we don't know these things, then the days will come upon us when the enemies will set up a barricade and surround us and hem us in on every side and tear us down to the ground. And, you know, that whether that that be in a physical or a spiritual way, you know, it's not really specific. You know, you can project this onto a very, individualized level, but also a collective level in the church, and even to a certain extent, a nation. And um, you get this very interesting um, call to repentance here, because what it does is, is when I mention the eschatology, I think I mentioned it before, I didn't say anything about it, here. so here we go. Eschatology, the study of the end times, the last things, we see that this is what will happen on the last day to all who do not believe, right? This isn't just a, this isn't solely a prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem. That is the one literal um, sense of what's going on here, but it's not unfounded to, um, to extrapolate this into a warning for all people, for all those who would claim to be, Part of the new Jerusalem, the new Israel of faith, descendants of Abraham by faith, um, that there's this warning here that in the last times, in the last days, um, well, this is kind of convoluted. I'm going to try and say it as short as I can, but Jesus here in this text is on his way to the cross. And in being on his way to the cross, he is carrying out the promised um, gospel that goes all the way back to Genesis, where the seed of the um, where the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, but he will you know he will strike the serpent's head and the serpent will bruise his heel. Um, and we see that there is there is a judgment carried out in the crucifixion. There is a judgment that is carried out in that Jesus is counted guilty on our account. Judgment is cast and carried out on him. For our sake. So, in a very real sense, the cross is the beginning of the end. And when we start to talk about the end times, we shouldn't get bogged down in the millennialist understanding of things, which uh, plays into the ideas of you know like left behind and the rapture and all these things like that. That the end times have yet to come. But we should understand that the end times are already here. That in the crucifixion, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the end times are here. Paul attribute Paul makes that connection, and um, you know it's it's. Throughout the scriptures, it's throughout the New Testament that we are in the end times. We are in the last days right now because our Lord has come. He has died for our sins. He has saved us from eternal death, damnation. And now we just patiently wait for him to carry out his fulfilled will in permanently destroying sin and death, wiping it away and making way for the new heavens and the new earth. Yet while we are waiting, we take the time in faith to cling to the promises that are delivered concretely in the Word and the sacraments, right? That by attending church specifically the divine service, where God is serving his people by preaching his word to them so that they would be strengthened in hearing his word and strengthened in their faith and the assurance of salvation. Um, Hearing these things and also remembering that they are baptized children of God by coming to church in the divine service to receive the the very body and blood of christ in the lord's supper that in all these things god is concretely giving us a foretaste of the feast to come in this divine work that he is bringing about through the pastor through the holy office of or through the office of the holy ministry That we see that now in these last times, in these last days, in the end times, which we are in, judgment has already been passed. Judgment has already been pronounced on Christ for our sake, but we don't receive the benefits for these things without faith, and that's why Jesus is weeping. That would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace that is, that Christ, that God Himself, ha- had been made flesh, had took upon our sins on his shoulders, though he knew no sin in himself, he took upon sin on He took upon our, our sin on His shoulders, carried it to the cross, and was crucified in our place, so that we would live eternally. And yet there are some who will not receive the benefits of this work and that is what makes jesus truly weep um you know it's not the it's it's not the thing where you know you hear people say like you know lies make baby jesus cry it, that i guess that's true but but what's really true is that jesus christ has come he has fulfilled the promises of god in full it is it is Finished, right? And now all that's left to do is to believe that it is done for you and to receive God's word for you, to receive the blessings of baptism that Jesus won for you on the cross and in rising from the tomb and ascending into heaven. That you would receive the blessings and the fulfilled promises of God in the body and blood of Christ given for you. For the forgiveness of your sins and the strengthening of your faith in the Holy Supper. So this is a call for all of us to not neglect these wonderful gifts of God. Um, if we do, we will not only experience hell on earth, that if we separate ourselves from the promises of God in his word and his sacrament in the the divine service, if we separate ourselves in that way, it's not just, you know, hell on earth is worse than anything we could possibly imagine, because either we are caught up in our own despair, or we are caught up in our own pride, and either way, if we remain in those states, we're damned, Um, because it is both, both of those are full rejections of the promises of God carried out in Christ. And in the end, we will not only suffer a living hell, but we will suffer eternal separation from God, which is nothing but weeping and gnashing of teeth, this feeling and this punishment of being given everything that your sinful heart desires, which is everything short of the ultimate fulfillment that God delivers in Christ that it's never enough, that the weeping and gnashing of teeth is people who hate God and who live eternally damned, hating him and being separated from the true joy and peace that only comes by God, from God through Christ. So think about these things. This is not, a, this is not just a, a simple thing of a history lesson of, of Jesus giving this prophecy of Jerusalem being sacked by the Romans, and that's the end of the story. It is a real call to repentance for all those who would believe to say that Christ has come, he has forgiven your sins, believe these things, and live according to it as well. Because if you don't, if you don't believe, and if you don't live out your faith in the way that God expects from those who proclaim and confess that Christ is Lord, it will not bode well for you, right? That in the end, instead of being vindicated on the last day and declared righteous once and for all and for all eternity, completely fulfilled on the last day, you will face judgment in the very worst possible sense, okay? Spent a lot of time on those first uh, groupings of verses there, verses 41 through 44. But hey, they're very important. Let's let's kind of just go quickly into the next, the last part of this. It's interesting that uh, verses 45 uh, and 46 is very short referencing of Jesus cleansing the temple. That we see here that um, it doesn't really talk in in Luke's gospel. He doesn't focus on Jesus entering the city, but more explicitly the temple. Right? And he begins to drive out those who sold, you know, the money changers, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And we see um, that Luke doesn't spend a whole lot of time, at, at least as much as Matthew um, and even John... Uh, on what Jesus does in terms of driving out you know the the turning over the tables the making the whip of cords and 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 driving people out right it, that sort of thing it's it's he doesn't focus so much on that but he focuses also he focuses on driving them out and a return to what is the purpose of the temple right uh, my house shall be a house of prayer but you have made it a den of robbers right that these imposters these um these false priests and prophets that have come in and corrupted what the temple was meant for, now Christ comes and cleanses, right? And then it immediately says, and he was teaching daily in the temple, um, and and it's the the emphasis on teaching, right? And Then it says the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. So it's not yet Jesus's time to be caught and um, tried and uh, sentenced to death, but he's teaching and he remains teaching in the temple. And Luke is condemning the chief priests, the scribes, and the principal men of the people who were seeking to destroy, as if they could, who were seeking to destroy Jesus, right? That their futile acts were just that. They're futile. They're trying to destroy someone who cannot be destroyed, that who only is delivered up according to the will of the Father, right? Right? Uh, But for now, they did not find anything they could do for all people were hanging on his words. So we see here in the gospel text a uh, call to repentance, a call to rally around and to remember the promises of God fulfilled in Christ, right? If you do not, there will be consequences. It is interesting, though, we see here that God does not force himself onto people, Jesus does not force himself onto people. Um, He doesn't force people to believe. He doesn't force people to receive the benefits of his saving work. He only entreats us to believe it, right? He doesn't force us. But in the end, if we reject the peace that is embodied in Christ, if we reject God in the flesh, if we reject his gifts given to us in word and sacrament, if we reject him, in the end, we will be forced to receive the consequences of that rejection, which is eternal damnation, okay? Let's quickly move on um, to our Old Testament text. Uh, We're only going to cover the Old Testament and the Epistle, uh, we'll see, we'll try and draw some parallels here. We'll go a little bit over. That's that's quite all right, because there's a lot here. Um, but we see here, the Old Testament is from Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 1 through 11, um, which says, "...the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah, who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel." Um, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one um, one with another, if you do not oppress these the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal murder commit adultery swear falsely make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say we are delivered only to go on doing all these abominations has this house which is called my name become a den um become a den of robbers in your eyes behold i myself have, s- have s- s- excuse me behold i my- i myself have s- s- seen it declares the lord this is the word of the lord thanks be to god so we see here some more hypocrisy being played out right that um, this, like it is in Jeremiah's day, so it was in Christ's day as well, and so it is also in our day, that um, this is another warning to us as Christians, especially in America. Um, we see that the Lord of hosts is seeing the hypocrisy of His people. Those who are antinomian in nature, which means that they are against the law, they pay the law, lip service, but in the end they'll say, oh, well, what are you going to do? This is how God made me, right? Um, That you find oftentimes in America today these false prophets who will go about telling you God loves you just the way you are. Um, Well, if just the way you are is apart from God and his mercy in Christ received by faith, then yeah, God loves you, but that's not going to deliver you from the coming wrath of the Lord, right? And that's the, that's the, that's another thing I should have mentioned, is that in the gospel text, that is in the prophecy of Jerusalem falling um, in a very real way shows God's wrath against... Um, Against, um, against outright, um, against outright. Excuse me, having a hard time. Against outright unbelief. There we go, <laughs> getting it out. That um, those who would come into the house of the Lord. You know, we see here uh, that. jeremiah is prophesying you know thus says the lord of hosts the god of israel amend your ways and your deeds and i will let you dwell in this place do not trust in these deceptive words this is the temple of the lord the temple of the lord the temple of the lord as if just being in the temple was good enough as if acting out the prescribed motions was good enough it's not about Going to the motions. It's not about um, saying the prayers. It's not about uh, doing all these things as if it's a work that you are doing. That's the point. It's not about what you do. It's about what is done in faith because of God's promises. And he says, Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known? And then, come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered. Only to go on doing all these abominations? And he goes on, has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? That um, It's kind of interesting that uh, he uses that phrase, become a den of robbers, and um, it's not that a den of robbers is a place that, you know, is, uh, <laughs> is um, a place where there's chaos and everything like that, but it's where the lawless live. It's where they have made their home. It is where they uh, bring their spoils back to, right? And that all of their sinful ways are safe in that place. That's what he's getting at. Do you, which is to say, do you think that the temple where the most holy God, the only God, God most High dwells. Do you think this place is where robbers can dwell safely? Do you think that this is the place where you can bring your sins and expect to keep them and not face consequences? Do you think that this that the, that God's house, right is the place where you can bring all of your pet sins, and think that God doesn't bat an eye at them and say, you know what, that's okay, don't worry about it, you're only human. It's despicable. It's despicable to think that. And people do it all the time. Um, They come to church, and they say the things that they need to say, and then they go on, um, and they hear, sometimes from certain pastors, they'll hear certain words, that a certain sermon, that will only tell them what they want to hear, which is that, you know, um, the worst thing in the world is being judgmental, being self-righteous. That's the worst thing in the world is for you to judge someone because of who they are. They are who they are and we can't judge them. You know, it's, it's just, it's absurd. It's to say, you know, it's kind of interesting when you see these, um, these uh, uh, churches that have the signs, you know, all are welcome. Well, of course all are welcome. But consider the churches that have these signs that say all are welcome, um, as if those who don't have the signs aren't welcome, you know, aren't, aren't welcoming. But the churches that have the signs all are welcome are typically your very liberal um, so-called Lutherans. <laughs> you have your very liberal um, mainline denominations— Uh, where they will say, all are welcome, and when you go there, all may be welcome, but all don't hear the saving gospel of Christ. More likely than not, they will be hearing a message that will keep them comfortable in their sins, that will say, you um, you know, you can come here if you've stolen something, if you've committed adultery, if you've sworn falsely, If you have false gods, or no, they wouldn't even say false gods, if you worship some other god, um, whether that be some of the Hindu gods, or um, if you're a Muslim, or if you're a Buddhist, or something like that, you can come and um, join us in saying, we are delivered, only to go on doing all those other things, right? That to go into a lot of these more liberal churches, they will just say, come on in, all are welcome, and you're not expected to change. You're not expected to give up your pet sins. You're not expected to um, be, you know, don't expect to be called a poor, miserable sinner. Don't expect to be told that uh, even the smallest... Sin is worthy of damnation. Don't expect to be told these things because they're not important. That's what they'll say. But they are important. God's law is important. God's law is paramount because what it does is it shows us the right way to live. And it also shows us that we cannot live that way. But it doesn't just... God never says, you know, oh, well, you can't fulfill the law. I still love you and you're going to be okay. No, he loves us and he shows his love for us by dying for us. Christ has died for our sin because that is the payment for our sin. That is the cost of our sin. That when we look at Christ on the cross, crucified, that is the image of our sin being paid in full. That's what it took. That is love lived out for us. And the law requires it, because the law requires payment for sin that we cannot pay in and of ourselves. The law drives us to despair of ourselves and drives us to seek out a Savior, which the gospel delivers, right? And now that we have received the good news that Christ has died for our sins and forgives us of those sins, we can now see the law in a joyful light, but not as something where it's like, oh, shucks, too bad, didn't do well enough. Oh, oh well, I'll just pick myself up and try again next time. No, you need to hear... Oh, I am a poor, miserable sinner. That's what you need to say. I'm a poor, miserable sinner. I have sinned in thought, word, and deed. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy on me. I am a sinner. And then he does. And he says, through the pastor, um, I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Right? Now, go and live as one who is redeemed by Christ. So that's roughly what Jeremiah is getting at, this, this answer to this hypocrisy, right? This call to repentance. And then we go on to our epistle text, which is from Romans chapter 9, chapters 9 and 10. Uh, the historic reading is from 1 Corinthians, but I felt you know the Lutheran service book uh, lectionary gives this as an alternate text, Romans 9 and 10. And so uh, we substituted it in. Um, and I might, you know, next year we might go back to the historic reading from First Corinthians, but this, you know, felt like it fit pretty well, which I'll read for you, and then we'll, we'll talk about it briefly, because we're way over time, but we're having a good time, right? Uh, so it's Romans uh, chapter 9, verses 30 through chapter 10, verse, uh, verse 4. So St. Paul writes, What shall we say then? Behold I, Zion, of, of, uh, of, uh, <laughs> Behold I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of and a rock of excuse me Behold I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of and it and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame, brothers. My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they be they may be saved. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge for being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from god and and s and, and Excuse me, I'm having a hard time. And seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we see here... um, this continuation, this doubling down on what it means to believe and receive the peace of God by faith, right? That the Gentiles um, who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, right and we've seen before that and paul says elsewhere that jesus christ is the stumbling block right he is he is the the um he is the rock of of i'm having a hard time he is the rock of, of offence right? Sorry, vowels are really tough for me to say sometimes. Um, and this is interesting word, uh, usage of the word stone here, right? Because remember in Luke 19, in our gospel text, that Jesus says to Jerusalem, and they, that is the enemies, will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And that visitation is the visitation of Christ who is crucified for our sins, right? Um, there's interesting usage of this word stone um, and that Jesus Christ is the stumbling stone, right? Um, that he uh, is the stone of stumbling. He's also the cornerstone, right? Uh, he is the stone that the builders rejected has now become the chief Stone, the chief cornerstone, right, from which all the house of God is built off of. He is the sole rule, norm, and guide of our lives, and who and who we we are supposed to um, grow into as the body of Christ, right? He is the head of the body. There, there's all this, and and it's kind of interesting. We we've, we've talked last week, or like a couple weeks ago, yeah, a couple weeks ago, about how um, false. Uh, this, this made me think of, and maybe I'm, I'm reading too much into it, but false prophets and false pastors, false teachers will um, preach things that have nothing to do with Christ. They will remove Christ from their preaching, right? Uh, the, they may reference Jesus. They may say that they're preaching Christ, but they're not preaching uh, what Jesus has commanded, which is um, all these things, including the really hard things, which have to do with God's wrath, which have to do with God's full counsel of his law and his gospel, right? That if they leave those things out, they remove Christ from their preaching, they remove the cornerstone from the church, and then on the last day, those pastors will have to give an account for all the people that they led astray with their false teaching that did not preach Christ, and in a way, um, in in a way, those people, the living stones of the house of God, will fall upon their own heads, and they will be the cause for their damnation. That's not a very fun thing to say. That's not a very well-received message in this day and age. But there are those in the world who would rather uh, mollycoddle you and tell you that everything's going to be okay, that um, you know, God loves you the, and, and accepts you the way that you are. But it's not true. It's a lie, and it's not loving. What is loving is to say you're a sinner, you're a poor, miserable sinner, in and of yourself, you cannot hit the mark. You cannot fulfill the perfect will of God. You can talk about love all day long. You can talk about how much you love this person and that person. You love all people. It's not possible for you to love more than God loves you. And that's another problem that Christians have today. We want to out-love God. And we show this by being, well, more than tolerant. We become accepting of people who are living in open and unrepentant sin. And this is something as small as someone who uh, lies and gets away with it, and someone just, like, turns a blind eye and says, well, they lied to me, but whatever. Uh, it destroys trust, right? And then it builds on from there. We turn a blind eye to people who live together before marriage. We turn a blind eye to people who have children out of wedlock. We turn a blind eye to divorce. We turn turn a blind eye to abortion, right? Now, for all the people... For all the things that, you know, come about because of these horrible things, if someone has suffered a divorce, someone has gone through a divorce, someone has uh, had an abortion, if someone has stolen or lied or cheated or whatever, we are to speak to them the full counsel of God, which is His law, saying that is a damnable offense. If someone is living with their fiancé or someone, you know, that, or the person they're going to marry, you know, um, if they're living with them before marriage, they're cohabiting, and chances are they're doing things they ought not to do because they're not married yet. You know, they're engaging in, in conjugal actions that are reserved only for husband and wife. We ought to tell them, this is not right. God does not want this for you, Okay. You need to repent and be forgiven and amend your ways, not by your own power, but by the power of God that is given to you because Christ has died for you. Believe that what you are doing in and of yourself apart from God is sinful. Realize that sorrow should be felt for these things and turn to God by the power of the Holy Spirit believe that Christ has died for you and forgives you all your sins, right? Believe these things and you will receive the benefit for them. You will receive the benefit of God's forgiveness by believing that Christ has shed his blood for you. But you first have to see that what you're doing is wrong. So these are things we have to keep in mind. These calls to repentance is also a call to faith that you can't just beat someone down with the law and leave them in despair. But when they have shown contrition, right? When they show that they are sorry, they repent, they amend their ways. They you can't withhold forgiveness from them. God loves them and we can't love someone more than God does, right? It's shown through Christ, God's love. Um, I'm kind of just going on and on here. Uh, we are way over time. <laughs> There's so much here. Sorry if this was a little jumbled, um, a little all over the place. Um, my mind actually is kind of elsewhere with, uh, you know, uh, the impending birth of my child. Um, so we are, we are eagerly awaiting that. Um, that's all for today for preparing for Sunday. Um, I pray that this, while it was a little rambly and a little bit longer, well, it was a lot longer... ...than what uh, we've been doing in the past couple weeks. But I pray that it has been a blessing to you. I pray that you will be able to um, go into Sunday morning with a better understanding of these texts... ...and really listen to the readings and what your pastor has to preach to you. Um, and hopefully, you know, he'll preach on some of these things. Maybe he'll preach on something that I didn't even cover. And you thought, wow, that just adds to what uh, Pastor Bovinghausen told me, you know, on the podcast. So... Uh, I pray that this happens. I pray that God would bless you and that um, uh, he would uh, draw you closer to him and to his will and his loving grace that is shown through Christ. Um, God's peace be with you. Uh, please continue to pray for um, for us, uh, for me and my wife. Um, we are... Uh, you know, I'm pins and needles waiting for this baby to come. We don't know what the sex is yet, so we're going to find out. And so there's a lot to uh, be anxious about, but we're excited and we're looking forward to it. So um, I look forward to next time I'm on here telling y'all that we had the baby and everything, but keep, keep praying for us. Pray, uh, keep us in your prayers that everything would go well, that we would have um, a healthy baby and that my wife would be healthy at the end of all that too. Um, And uh, we appreciate it. God's peace. And we'll see you next time.